Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Bankruptcies, bond market stresses, and new loan losses. Oh my! This and more, as Roger also touches on how China's risks may impact the United States. Let's take an updated look at the United States and China in terms of economic risks. We'll defer the European countries to a future podcast, but we'll just note here that weakness in those economies is becoming more and more pronounced. As mentioned last podcast, our own economic environment is recovering at a disturbingly slow pace. Global economic recovery and re-employment, much less new jobs creation in large numbers, will be years in the making. Let's start with the United States. Where are we now with economic and employment trends? First of all, COVID-19 and politician responses will slow or stall our recovery phase. Those who foresee a return to 2019's GNP are looking at a long time, certainly more than two or three years, possibly more than five years. We all know that the longer the timeline it does take, the more the opportunity for additional economic and payroll shocks, including continuing new money creation, higher and higher government debt, and importantly, low use of our economy's capacity. Let's highlight each of these destabilizing forces or issues one by one. Our economy, including restaurants, conference centers, hospitals, offices, public transportation systems, airlines, retailers, and shopping centers, universities, health clubs, movie venues, hotels, theme parks, movie studios, trains, warehouses, cruise line, commercial ships, and even financial institutions were built and financed for high-capacity usage. We are beginning to see the reality of low-capacity usage even if we find a vaccine and begin inoculation programs next year. Additionally, Congress and the Federal Reserve are so far committed to providing month-to-month liquidity to many households and businesses, but it's crucial to note that this monthly support does not resolve the household and business solvency issues. In brief, paying the bills today and this month and next month only buys time as operating for years below the high capacities built into our economic systems do not make households and businesses financially sustainable. When the vast amounts of unaffordable financial support drops or stops, business revenues and households financially for many will lead to bankruptcies on a shocking scale, in my view, whether it be later this year or next year. In 18 weeks, 53 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance. That's a third of our workforce, more than in the Great Depression. Despite the CARES program and related major lending and money creation programs, the negative momentum continues. Almost on a daily basis, we see these issues mounting both inside and outside the United States. Business bankruptcies are impacting almost every part of our economy. I'll give some quick perspective to demonstrate the breadth of issues across our economy pretty much throughout all the sectors. Let's pause for a second to recall that these companies or organizations, particularly the ones I mentioned versus the rest of the U.S., as more reopening deferrals are put in place. 
Keeping in mind, California is now faring worse than the rest of the country. I'd like to share some Yelp data with you that's become available really recently for the United States in total. So the expectation that, based on what I mentioned, is that California is going to be more negatively impacted than the data I'm going to share. Yelp concluded in July that 41% of all businesses closed in March are now permanent closures. In my opinion, this is breathtaking. We'll try to find similar data for April and May closings, but this magnitude will all but guarantee many lost jobs will not return, if at all. And the timeline, optimistically, will be many years in the future, if they do return, under different ownership and different names and different companies. Yelp also reported that as of July 10th, they have recorded over 26,000 restaurant closures, which is over 2,100 more than June 15th. So the closures continue. They also conclude that 60% of all closed restaurants should be classified now as permanently closed. And this number is becoming higher as we go along. A final point to consider about the future viability of businesses as differentiated from temporary liquidity provided by many of the programs, over 40 years of data show a strong correlation between U.S. commercial bank delinquency and U.S. unemployment rate. I'll provide the chart in my free UCLA Extension course, so if you took advantage of the free enrollment, you'll see it. If you haven't yet enrolled and still would like to, you can still do so for the next week. This chart shows the quick upturns in loan delinquencies when unemployment turns up. For now, take my word for it. It's really large and really obvious. Our unemployment rate just spiked this year from under 4% to 14% or so when needed adjustments are made, which is by far a record move in data collection for unemployment in the United States. Now we can expect, based on correlations and past charts of the relationship, bad delinquencies or debt delinquencies will not only spike, but they're going to keep going up for many months. It's going to be far more than just one month. Based on this correlation, I think the delinquency rate can go from under 2% earlier this year on commercial loans to perhaps 20% or higher by year end. And I'm quite sure no one is reserving for bad loan losses of 20%. I'm confident, so I hope I'm wrong. If this does occur, bank reserves and lending capabilities will be most adversely impacted, which ultimately will require even more money creation and another round of bailouts. So let's keep in touch with upcoming news on bankruptcies, on bond market stresses, and new loan losses, which will be played out regularly for the balance of this year. All in all, we are now close to the point, if not at the point, where attention will turn to personal and business insolvencies, not curable by temporary cash distributions and not curable by credit market liquidity injections. Our clear and present danger is low consumer spending and no need for business to invest more in producing assets. We have plenty of capacity. A lot of capacity is unused in virtually any industry we have. Whether it be consumer goods, manufacturing, retail service locations, very little need to consider more investments. As consumers now choose to save over 20% of their incomes, and that's likely out of fear and elevated job-related risks, and I'm not even commenting on the upcoming election, which is a whole series of other risks, but 
businesses are struggling to pay their ongoing fixed expenses. And we know those fixed expenses include rent, they include insurance, they include property taxes, they include local fees, they include licensing fees, they include minimal expenses for maintenance of the property, security, and so forth. Businesses are struggling to pay these ongoing fixed expenses, and many families and businesses are operating in preservation mode. There's very limited interest, in my view, in taking risks. Given that situation, future shocks to our economy can come from a whole number of areas, including banking crises in Europe, real estate-related meltdowns in China, large debt defaults from emerging economies, the U.S. election, a global bond market that's already on life support by all Western world central banks. I'll stop there, but we'll focus on China shortly. All the above suggests that money creation, government deficits, and the upramp of government borrowing has to continue. This continuation will create a series of new emerging issues which we will address in future podcasts. But these new issues are likely going to relate more to cost-push inflation and spikes up in global interest rates, despite all the efforts to keep the interest rates down. Both of these anticipated future issues severely and negatively impact the U.S. and global bond markets, which in turn create new insolvency issues in existing pension funds, and it also downgrades the potential opportunities for city, states, and the federal government to borrow new money, which they are going to have to do. I'll stop here, but you can imagine the importance of all the present efforts to stabilize the financial markets but also consider how much this is costing, the vast amount of trillions of dollars being created, the vast amount of trillions of dollars being appropriated by the federal government, which requires more trillions of dollars of debt as they have no excess cash. The threat of inflation has been put on the back burner during all the crisis fighting, but it's starting to receive some serious attention, as it should. For example, Bank of America recently provided their perspective, which they labeled the, quote, inflation roller coaster, unquote. They point out that COVID has actually created a short-term deflation in key components of the consumer price index. They look at lodging away from home, in other words, hotels, motels. They look at airline fares, apparel prices, and car insurance. These four components are now in solid uptrends of price increases versus what they were in March, April, and even into May. So that short-term effect of deflation from those is over. In addition to the above four components, inflation for the past three or four months was over 2% when those components are taken out. So that temporary reduction actually brought the whole consumer price index closer to a negative 1% as opposed to a positive 2%. Let's move on to two additional components that account for almost 40% of the core inflation measurement. One is the owner's equivalent rent of owned homes, and the other is the actual rental prices, which have been stabilized or manipulated downward by local governments. Both of these factors will strongly impact future consumer price index measurements by the end of this year and all during next year. It's worth noting that so far, homeowners have been the least impacted by layoffs and the renters have been the most impacted. The lower paid members of the workforce and entry-level employees make up a vast majority of the unemployed so far. Assuming a gradual recovery over the next year or two, these components will be supporting a higher consumer price index. One, 
the prices of homes is beginning to move up again. And secondly, rent prices have been manipulated down or at least stabilized by local regulations in a lot of the major cities. That's not expected to continue past the end of this year. The bottom line is Bank of America expects inflation data to be officially low for at least the next six months or so, and then next year, inflation likely accelerating. Again, it's cost push. In our economic evaluations, we must also consider the potential of crisis potential outside the United States, and the world is now connected much like a spider web. A strong pull on one strand can destabilize the entire construct. What appears to be the major risks outside the United States that will impact the U.S.? In this podcast, we'll focus on China. China is in the latter stages of an economic bubble, and really, it's a housing bubble. And this housing bubble in China is multiples larger than the one that created our 0809 Great Recession. In fact, our bubble and our related housing credit market destabilized most of the world's largest economies. Now, China threatens an even greater destabilization, with no one quite sure of the impact of the U.S. and Europe on credit and stock markets. Let me give you some facts as we are beginning to evaluate this really seriously, and there's no good answer right now, but we are working toward a framework for understanding the impact. First, at the peak of the U.S. property boom, approximately $900 billion annually was invested in the U.S. residential real estate market. In China, through June of this year, the annual amount is $1.4 trillion. Number two, the total value of Chinese homes and developers' inventories in China hit $52 trillion last year, according to Goldman Sachs. That's twice the size of the U.S. residential market. In fact, the Chinese residential market value is larger than the value of the entire U.S. bond market, which by itself is the largest credit market in the world. It's really big. Three, China's household debt to total assets hit 58% this year, which is double what it was five years ago. Four, 21% of homes in China's cities were vacant in 2017, most recent data I have which represented 65 million empty housing units. Speculators, including those who own second and third homes, hold housing inventories that have 40 to 50% vacancy rates. Number five, unlike the United States, over 96% of China's urban households are homeowners. In the U.S., we're about 65%. Number six, According to the Bank of International Settlements, China accounted for 57% of the world's household borrowing last year, all around the world. 57%, the U.S. about 19%. In several major Chinese cities, apartments are sold normally, or priced normally, at prices of over $800 per square foot. That's similar to many areas of London, but in London, incomes are seven times higher. Number eight, urban Chinese have nearly 78% of their wealth tied up in their residential property versus about a third in the United States. Like the U.S., the China shadow banking system plays a key role in all the growing lending, which in turn puts the official banking system at risk, just as it has done and does in the United States. Much of the shadow banking liquidity in China, the money actually comes from the banks, and that's also the case in the United States. 
An added risk is that in China, local governments get over 50% of their revenue from land sales. It seems that China is a year or two, maybe three, from a substantial financial crisis originating in its real estate sector. And we know what that's like because we went through that in, in 2008, 2009, and many would agree that we still are going through a crisis that existed 10 years ago in real estate. So for now, we'll continue to watch China, but it's likely to move front and center as the United States and Europe rebuild their own supply chains and discourage continuation of China imports and investments, for that matter. Here are some quick implications. First of all, the stock market is in bubble territory, and so are bonds, due to Federal Reserve and government support activities. At a point, the powers that are supporting the U.S. financial markets, in my view, will be focused to provide a softer landing as opposed to maintaining these high asset prices. My bet is that the month of August will give us more useful information, and the month of August could even give us a crisis in the process. We're going to know a lot more on this subject, I think, in the next 30 days. In the meantime, I expect high volatility while we find out. Personally, I'm delaying any new stock market purchases until next year as there may be some large downs and ups in the meantime. Number two, we need to always keep in mind that a handful of stocks have a major influence in the U.S. market averages. For example, in the Standard & Poor's 500 index, these six stocks make up one-fourth of the Standard & Poor's 500 company index. And these six stocks are Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. These stocks can continue to be strong and mask issues in the remaining stocks, and I would argue this has already been the case. Number three, the digital and more generally the technology stocks are leaders, will likely continue to be leaders in my view. So the NASDAQ has outpaced and may well continue to outpace the Dow Jones and S&P. During the prolonged recovery, I expect... My own suspicion is that this outpacing by NASDAQ will continue, but in a large sell-off, all the stocks can offer much lower prices to those who wait. Let's see if I'm correct over the next month or two. Number four, what sectors of the market warrant some additional attention from now until year-end? As you've likely noted, precious metals and precious metals mining companies. Utilities are rarely mentioned, but utilities are worth analysis in my view. Preferred stocks of seasoned companies with low debt equity ratios. This will require some research as there are many smaller companies that issue preferred stocks and these smaller companies may have higher risk profiles. So I won't say preferred stocks overall, but preferred stocks of seasoned companies, particularly those with low debt equity ratios. Cash to preserve capital, cash to meet needs, cash to be independent, month-to-month -month of the market volatility. Please do join our free course that expands greatly on our podcasts. If you go to www.uclaextension.edu, scroll down the homepage to No-Cost Educational Resources and Tools and click on it. Then scroll down the page that appears and click on the 2020 Panic, What's Next?, navigating panics, recessions, and recoveries, and just follow the trail to enroll. Just enroll. For now, be well, be safe, be financially careful. 
Take care. Bye. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.